In our church, we stand for six core values. You can see them written here on the banners. And we believe wholeheartedly in prayer, in the power of prayer. And whenever someone's sick or dealing with something, whether it's emotional or physical, we believe that God cares enough to do something in your life, to, to heal, to, to work in your life. And so we want to pray for people that are suffering, that are hurting, that God will do a miracle. And surely has a story to tell you about how God used unceasing prayer in her life. And I'll probably start crying. <laughs> but for a month, I have went to the doctors and they said that I had precancer in my bladder. I had to go to Ann Arbor for surgery last Monday. Everybody, I'm here. <laughs> and when we got there, we went and seen three doctors. They did x-rays, tests. We were there for a long time, and they could find nothing. So thank you, Lord, for that. Amen. Praise God for you, Shirley. Thank you for that testimony. And Chris, Chris has another equally inspiring uh, testimony because he was living out our value of being an unrelenting witness this week, and Chris has got a little story to share. How's it going? Um... Can I be real with you guys? I'm, uh, I'm just an ordinary person, um, just trying to represent Christ every day and in a, a broken world. And um, I have a passenger, I, I drive with uh, passengers every day that deal with mental illnesses, alcoholism, drugs, suicidal. And uh, I got to it. Um, I got the privilege to witness to a young man who's 19 years old. Um, he tried committing suicide a couple weeks ago, and um, they handed him a Bible at the hospital, and he was just reading a bit, little bit of Revelation, and so that kind of got us talking and stuff. And I, uh, I got to share the story of Jesus and how He's God, and how He, God, came down in a personal way and, and died for us. He's not just any God, but He's the only God that would sacrifice His life for us, so we could have, be, have eternal life. And, and went from there to get to share that with him. And um, I said, he was going to be my second one off the bus. I kid you not. And he ended up being the last one off my bus that day. And uh, and I told him, I'll talk to you, man, a little bit more. I want to get some more people off and stuff. And uh, I said, uh, this is the way to the eternal life. And I, got, and I told him that Jesus is the only way. And I said, you can make that decision right now. And from the depths, you meant from the depths of your soul, you would, you'd be saved. And I said, you can say this prayer with me. It's, it's not the prayer, but it's what's behind the prayer. It's what, it's what your intentions and your, and your soul is crying out to want, to want and mean. So I, I, um, I prayed with him and uh, he accepted Christ. And, and, I, and I think it's amazing what oftentimes, you know, when we just humble ourselves to the Holy Spirit. And that, and that voice in our head and in our heart is telling us to reach out to someone. Every day we know someone's going to hell and, and we need to do speak out to them and love them. And uh, this kid just happened to come around my path that day and I was very excited. I said, dude, you made my Friday. And he's like, no, man, you made mine. And I was just very excited. And I just want to share it before you guys and I think that's just amazing. God at work in our church and our people, I think, I think, I think, as we're going through these seven churches, 
one thing I'm seeing, seeing amazing out of it is it's a cry out for us to, um, you know, like what Joey was saying last week, our first love. Our first love is definitely Christ. I love him more than anything in this world. And I, and I, when I see people in the dark places on this bus every day that I know are going to hell and they're, and, and they're committing suicide and it breaks my heart. Back the truth from them either, and it's a risk every day <laughs> that I take for my job. But you know, that's what I'm willing to take. Thanks, Thanks for sharing that, Chris. Appreciate it. So that leads us to this next point of our service. This is the time we receive our offering. Now, we don't often think about it this way because when it comes to writing checks and paying bills, it's mostly like the most depressing part of our month. You know, we, we get online, we're like, oh, how much is left in the bank account? We got we to gotta pay. But I'm telling you, when this bucket gets full, every cent that goes in here goes to life change. Every cent goes into making a difference in somebody's life. If we could have our ushers come forward and, and we're getting ready to receive our offering. See, every time we get ready to pass this out, that's an opportunity for you to make a difference in somebody's life without even meeting that person. The funds that go in here go to, go to, uh, are going to begin to go to foreign missions as we take on foreign missionaries, but they go to help needs in our community. We, we are partnering with Rochelle and some others about uh, helping meet needs with some kids that have lost their family members that, you know, over the last couple months and, and this year. We're meeting needs with like the Hidalgo family and providing resources for those that are struggling with kids with illness. Everything that comes in goes to ministry in some form or fashion to life change. And uh, we at Vertical Life Church, we feel so passionately about this. We take 20% of everything that comes in right off the top and it's strictly used to meeting needs in our community and in our church. And so when we get these buckets out, if you would with me, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate in expectation of what God is getting ready to do. So if you would, let's go ahead and pass the buckets and let's clap our hands. Let's celebrate. Let's just praise God for what he's going to do because everything that comes in means more lives changed, more people coming to Christ, more homes that are going to be put back together. This is what this means. And so this is an incredible thing for us. So as the buckets are going around, I'm going to pray and then we will get into our message this morning. Father God in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the testimonies today of healing. God, we know that you're on the throne and you still have the power and desire to heal and things that are in our lives, God. And so we just ask that you'd help us to be in step with you. God, that we would always be desiring to take greater steps of faith, to honor you and to allow you to do the miraculous in our lives. God, I, I thank you for this testimony of, of the one coming to Christ. And we know that when one sinner comes to repentance, you throw a party in heaven. And so, God, we, we want to join with you in that party today. God, as we gather here to worship you, Lord, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that you are working and you are moving and you desire to use us to make an impact in our community and in the lives of those we come across every day. So God, I pray that you'd bless the money that comes in. Lord, it's just paper and it's just metal. In the scheme of eternity, it doesn't mean much, God, but when you work through it, the benefits and the blessings that come from it last for all eternity. And so, God, we just thank you in advance for what you're going to do through those gifts. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you been enjoying this series? We've been going through Revelation in these churches. Uh, God has opened my eyes to so many things through this series. And my passion and my desire just to honor him with who I am is even more 
I would say, great or has developed in a deeper way through this series. And, and I know that a lot of times we can get... We can stumble. We can get tripped up because of the mistakes that we make and the, the attitudes that we face each and every day. But as I look at these churches and how God just reveals himself, it just reaffirms to me that his grace is beyond words, that, that his love for us is beyond measure. And it has made me love him at least a little bit more than what I did yesterday. And so I just, I'm thankful for the scripture and for his messages to the churches in Revelation. And, and today we come to our last church, is the church in Laodicea. It's in Revelation chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 14. So if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn there to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Um, or the scriptures will also be on the screen today. And we're going to be looking at this final letter. So beginning in verse 14, Jesus writes to the church in Laodicea. He says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. He says, I know the things you do. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were the other, but since you are luke like lukewarm water, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing, and you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be ashamed by your nakedness, and ointment from your eyes so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So in the beginning of this letter... Jesus is setting the framework of what he wants the people in this church to understand, as he does with every other letter of the church revelation. He wants them to know, he wants these people, these Christians in the church of Laodicea, to know what has been made available to them in heaven and who it is that is making it available. And I think many times we forget, as Christians, we forget how good we have it as believers in Jesus Christ. Because of this life, these struggles, and the way it, it shifts our focus off of just what God has prepared in store for us. But Jesus, he reveals himself to this church this way for a specific reason. I believe it's so that when he rebukes this church, they understand that the rebuke is from a heart that loves them desperately, that loves them dearly. So I don't know about you, but this kind of conversation is a challenge for me. Because I've always kind of been the rebuke first, throw out sympathy later kind of person. I've just kind of always been like all out there. Um, and so, which for most of my life has made me come across as harsh or, or insensitive. But the reality is, is I, I consider myself to be a nice guy. I don't really want to hurt anybody's feelings. But the way the truth just kind of flows out of me, it, it kind of comes across in a harsh way a lot of times. And so... Um, a per, and, I, and I speak this way, and at least in my mind, what I like to tell myself to make myself feel better about the way I am, is that because I really don't want people to kind of misunderstand or, or not know what I'm really thinking. And so I just kind of come out with what's on my mind. And I don't usually take the time to give context for my remarks, so it can come across as rude and insensitive sometimes. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus 
prepares the heart to hear the message. Jesus, in the seven letters to the seven churches, does an incredible job at creating context. He paints this incredible picture of himself so they can see him in the way they need to see him setting the stage for this harsh rebuke. So when we get to hear Jesus' words, after we look at how he presents himself to the church at Laodicea, you will, like me, I believe, hear the passion in his words, not the harshness. See, in this final letter to the churches, Jesus begins this letter by introducing himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Now, we kind of have this tradition in, in church, if you have a Christian background of any kind, uh, a pastor or a speaker will throw out a phrase. They'll say, and all God's people said, and then the church will reply, amen, amen right? This is, this is what we do, and we use this word amen a lot. So if you would bear with me and humor me for just a moment, I'm going to ask everyone to stand to your feet. All right, we're doing spiritual calisthenics this, this morning. Stand to your feet. Now, I want you to give three people a high five, and I want you to tell them, get ready the amen has a word for you. Okay, ready? Go. Three people, high five. Tell them, get ready. The amen has a word for you. Those of you that chose to sit by yourself this morning, I got a little further to go. Amen. The amen has a word for you. All right. Because honestly, God does have a word for you. You can be seated. God, the amen, has a word for you. Now, we use this word amen a lot, but I think most of us don't even know what it means. And, and I think we do this a lot. I know like for me, I like to sound smarter than what I really am a lot of times in conversations. So I'll just throw out words hoping people have no idea what they're talking about. But, but we do this in church all the time. We use these big churchy words like we know exactly what we're talking about, but we don't know what we're talking about at all when we use them. And so when we use this word amen and we refer to Jesus as the amen, it's important that we look at actually what Jesus is saying. And Paul the Apostle he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, exactly what this word amen means and what Jesus is referring to when he says he is the amen. In verse 18, Paul writes, he says, As surely as God is faithful, the faithful and true witness, our word to you does not waver between yes and no. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you. And as God's ultimate yes... He always does what he says. For all God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, right? That's the word. Which means, what's it mean? Yes. It means yes. He ascends to God for his glory. So Jesus is revealing to this church in Laodicea that he is ascending to heaven to be our, what's the word? Yes! Exclamation point. This is an emphatic. This is a triumphant statement. This is yes. He is our guarantee that God's promises are available to us. That the church, this new entity that Jesus is creating, combining the Jews now with the rest of the world together into one new body called the church. Jesus isn't just an amen. He is our Amen. He is personal. He is our amen. He is our yes. So when we say this word amen, 
What we're saying is that we are in agreement. This is what we're saying. So when someone prays and everyone says, amen, you are agreeing to what was just said. And through our faith in Jesus Christ, we get Jesus to be our yes, which means now through Christ, we are in agreement with God. We are in agreement. We are made right with God. We've now been placed in the center of his blessing. So what God has promised to the Jews that was reserved just for his chosen people now applies to everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Believers now have been grafted in, Paul says in Romans chapter 11, grafted into the great promises of God's holy people. And he talks about this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 through 29. Paul writes to the church of Galatia and says, There is no longer Jew or Gentile, no longer slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham now belongs to you. So when Jesus says, I am the amen, I am the yes, referring to I am now what combines or connects you to the promises of God, he's going all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis chapter 22, 17 through 19, when God first called out a special people to himself through Abraham. And God makes this promise to Abraham. And Paul is now saying that this promise now applies to the church. And as we're looking at this promise, we can see God's hand working through the church to fulfill this promise every step of the way. In verse 17 in Genesis 22, God starts out by saying to Abraham, I will certainly bless you. Now, when Jesus was here, Jesus said that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come to give you a rich and satisfying life, or an abundant life, or a life overflowing with blessing. And so as God is referring to Abraham, Abraham, I am going to bless you. Jesus now, coming to us, beginning and gathering his church together, is now placing us into this blessing that he was giving Abraham. God goes on to tell Abraham, I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And beginning in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit's fire fell down on those apostles, they went out and spoke with other tongues and preached the gospel. And 3,000 people came to Christ in one day and the church began unleashing a movement on the world. We can see from the end of that chapter, God says that, and he added to their number daily those that were being saved. And since that point, every day God has been adding numbers to the church. He has been adding souls to be saved. And in Revelation, we see as God peels back the veil uh, to John the Apostle and lets him take a view of what's in heaven, John gets to see a great multitude of every tribe, nation, and tongue, a multitude that cannot be numbered. And this is the church being revealed in heaven. And so as God promises Abraham that they will be innumerable, God has fulfilled that through the church of Jesus Christ. And then God tells Abraham, your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And we looked at the previous churches in Revelation 3 that we are told by Christ that we will rule with Christ. That we will be the arm of the iron rod he uses to bring all of the nations into subjection. That the nations, that our enemies will bow at our feet recognizing that we are the ones whom God loves. That we have been made co-heirs with Jesus. We will inherit the same authority God has reserved for Jesus Christ. That we will conquer all of our enemies. In verse 18, 
God promises to Abraham, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And God has entrusted us with the gospel. The gospel is literally described or translated as good what? Good news. It's good news. The reason why all the nations of the earth will be blessed is because we have brought good news to every nation, every continent, all over the planet. We have covered this world with the name of Jesus Christ. And we, as we continue to get the gospel to areas in this world that have yet to hear the name of Jesus, we have also been called by God to take up the mission of social justice, that we would meet the needs and, and go to work for the, the fatherless and the widow and, and the orphan and those who have been uh, caught up in slavery and, and those who are hungry and thirsty and in places in the world that, that are suffering. We, the church, are to be liked to those places and to bring blessing and the love of God into the places that desperately need him. God is working this out through the church. And he closes this blessing to Abraham. He says, I'm going to do this all because you have obeyed me. And Jesus said that if you truly love me, you will obey my commandments. You will obey my commandments. This will be the description of his people. And our faith is what drives us to honor God with our lives and bless the nations. So who and what the church is and how God is using the true church of Jesus Christ mirrors the promise given to Abraham. And we know in, in John chapter 1, in the gospel of John, John starts out the whole uh, gospel that he's writing by declaring who Jesus is, that he's not just the son of God, but he is God, and, and that he's the originator and the source of everything that was ever made. All of creation, you read about in Genesis chapter 1, everything that God made in the Genesis creation was made by Jesus Christ. And now in Revelation chapter 3, Verse 14, he introduces himself as being the originator of the new world, the originator of God's new creation. And uh, Jesus says here that he's going to make all things new, that the new world that is to come, where God lives among his people, where sin and suffering are no more, where the lion lies down with the lamb and Satan is locked away permanently in the lake of fire of all eternity. Jesus not only is the yes, the amen, the one who connects us to all the promises of God, but he is the one. He is the one in whom all things will be made new for his people. Jesus is declaring here that he is the author of the new world to come, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the source of all that is good, all of God's grace, all of God's mercy, all of God's love, and that this church at Laodicea and all of us here that are standing here listening to the word of the Lord today, all of us have access to what God is preparing through the source, through our amen, through Jesus Christ. So this reality, understanding what God has prepared and made available to us, ought to, ought to like do something in our hearts. It ought to well up within us this desire to worship God with all that we are. There's, there's an old song I love to sing. It's called the doxology. It's a simple song, but it simply says, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And then it ends this chorus or this song with one word. It is amen. Yes. yes. 
We agree. Praise God from whom everything. He is the source. He is the originator. He is the beginner of everything that is good. And so Jesus begins this letter revealing these powerful truths and these promises to this church and to us. And it's easy if you just read the letter to read that rebuke and hear an angry tone and hear you know, Jesus coming down harshly on this church. But in the context of how Jesus is introducing himself, I can almost hear some desperation. I can almost hear him pleading with this church from a broken heart because he's trying to wake them up. Wake up. Realize who is before you. Who is speaking. Realize what is in store for you. He's trying to evoke an emotional response. You see, this message today and the final message in our series is called Laodicea and the Indifferent Christian. Laodicea and the Indifferent Christian. He's trying to wake them up. And I know as we've been studying these churches, through these letters, they were written to specific people at a specific time. But I believe so strongly that they were meant for us to read today. So much so that Jesus even said this to John in Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. He says, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. God not only wrote this to those churches, but he intended every church for all time to read these letters. Because he has a specific word to everyone who would call on his name. So you may be here today, and you may have just walked in the door just to go through some spiritual motions. You might just be checking this church thing out maybe for the first time, or maybe it's just something you feel like you need to do. And you realize that no matter your church background, no matter where you've been, maybe you've grown up in church, or maybe this is your first time here today, that you find yourself in a place spiritually today where you seem to be increasingly unaffected inside and you feel disconnected. So today, the amen, the source of God's new world has a message for you to the indifferent Christian. Revelation chapter 3 verse 15, Jesus says, I know all the things you do. You are neither hot nor cold. So you know when you've been outside for a long period of time, maybe playing sports or gardening or doing something, you get really hot and you just get really thirsty. That dry mouth sets in. You're just like, oh, I just need a drink. And so you, you go and you see a water bottle laying, laying around, maybe on the kitchen counter or something. You grab it and you start drinking it. And what you thought was going to be a cold, refreshing cup of water or a drink of water, it's like room temperature. See, to me, I think that's nasty. Like, I think room temperature water tastes like sweat. I mean, that's just, that's just how I am. My wife thinks I'm weird to describe it that way, but it does. It feels like I just licked, like, the armpit of somebody. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's gross. It's disgusting. And, and, and it's just, it doesn't satisfy. So whenever you want that, that refreshing water, you don't go for lukewarm water. You go for cold water. Cold water satisfies and takes that thirst away. Now, on the other side, hot water. You can do stuff with hot water. You can make hot tea. You can make hot cocoa if you got the instant stuff. You can make a bowl of soup. You can clean stuff more efficiently and, and disinfect things. You can do things with hot water that you can't do with cold and vice versa. You can do things with cold water that you can't do with hot. But lukewarm water, it's just kind of useless. 
It's stagnant. It allows for the development of bacteria. And if your bottle of water has been out in the sun and it's lukewarm, probably the chemicals in the bottle have seeped into the water and now you're getting cancer as you're drinking the, the sweaty water. You know, it's, it's just not a good thing, at least in my mind. And Jesus is revealing to this church that he is going to spew them out of his mouth, that they will be rejected because they are lukewarm. See, oftentimes people, especially church people, they come in and they camp out on this, well, I'm a good person excuse. I mean, they may attend church services and every once in a while, you know, maybe volunteer. They throw a donation in in the bucket every once in a while and they think they have it made. They're like, oh, I'm good. I've I've taken care of my spiritual things. But the reality is, is they have nothing going on in the heart. They're here, but there's nothing going on in their heart. And Jesus, he's, he's coming down on this church in verse 17 for the similar things. He says, you say I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. See, they're deceived. See, they were lukewarm because they were spiritually blind. Blind to the state of what they really were. Yes, they went to church. They seemingly led a blessed life. They had what most people dreamed of. The city of Laodicea was a rich town. Archaeology has discovered that they had an advanced medical school. They had tons of Greek art and, and, uh, and things that you would find in an affluent society. That this place, we could liken it to today's culture. We could say that the people in this town were living the American dream. And they were so convinced that they had it so good that they, were in good that they were in good with God because of all that they had been blessed with. And they didn't realize the reality that they needed faith at all. They didn't know that they actually had a deep need for change. And Jesus reveals to them the true nature of their hearts. See, this is what also happened to Israel. After Israel had had been walking with God, they finally got to the promised land. The temple had been set up. Over a period of time, they began to believe that if they just fulfilled the checklist of the law, then they were okay without giving consideration to actually really loving God. So everything they did was for themselves, not to honor God. And uh, when our leadership team, we were at the leadership conference in Catalyst in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, the last talk of the, the conference is usually the best one. And Andy Stanley, in like fashion, gets up and presents just some challenges to church leaders. And he gave an illustration there that I'm definitely ripping off right here and now. And I'm going to rephrase it in my own words so you think it's from me. So if you like it, it's mine. If you don't, blame it on Andy. But, uh, but I'm just going to reveal what God struck a chord with me when he was speaking. Now, in the context of what he was talking about, he's talking about the time where Jesus is being confronted by some religious leaders, and they're kind of grilling him on uh, what the law meant, and specifically on marriage. So Jesus, one day, he's, he's talking to those religious leaders, and his disciples are there with him, and they're asking him about divorce and remarriage, and Jesus says something incredibly controversial. Even today, standards, it was incredible. it's incredibly controversial. But Jesus, he sets the bar for what a holy marriage is so incredibly high. So high. See, we in the modern American church, as we look to study the scriptures and live out our faith, we try desperately to find all the loopholes we can. All the loopholes we can in the word of God. We come up with excuse after excuse as to why what the Bible teaches versus how we're choosing to live our lives don't apply to us. 
And this is what the religious leaders in Christ's day were even doing. They were doing the same thing. They were looking at the law and they're saying, yes, I know God said this, but how can I get around this and still feel good about myself? And so in the context of divorce and remarriage, Jesus makes an incredible statement. And even in our culture today, and even in this room today, the divorce rate in our culture is incredibly high, even among Christians. Chances are that half the people in this room have either been affected by divorce or have gone through divorce. There, it's just apparent. But that does not change the truth of the Word of God. We believe in unyielding truth. Amen? God's Word is His Word. See, back then, divorce was just as common as today. Sometimes we don't think about that. But even the religious leaders, they would divorce their wives. They lived in a very male-dominant society. And, and oftentimes, if the husband, he looked at his wife, he looked at his family much like property, less like a loved one. And if there was anything that had come in between the marriage or maybe the wife said something that day that just set him off, he could just write something on a piece of paper and send her on her way and she'd be homeless. I mean, this is what would happen. It was commonplace in the time of Christ. And so as Jesus is addressing divorce here, there may have been even some of these religious leaders that had gone through divorce. Again, in this society, they had, they had practiced polygamy. So many of these guys had multiple wives and, and things. And so it wasn't too much to send someone packing. But when he makes this statement... You can just see like the eyebrows raise and the hair on the back of the neck of these religious leaders stand up. And he talks in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 9. Here's what he says. We'll just read it. He says, Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning God made them male and female. And he said, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let, one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. These were the religious leaders. And Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Let that resonate in your spirit for a moment. That the only heavenly sanctioned divorces are the ones where one spouse cheats on another. Anything and everything else is adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery is the seventh commandment of the original Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses in the nation of Israel. So if you've been divorced or remarried, for any other reason than infidelity. And I'm not saying this to shame you. Hear me on this. I'm just reading what Jesus has said. We need to feel the weight of this as Christians. To understand the holiness of God and where we are in comparison to him. See, we don't like passages like this in the Bible. We don't. Especially in our culture. Our culture hates passages like this. Because we want the Bible to make us feel better about the pride and the selfishness and the bitterness and the anger. And all of the other sins that we bury deep within that we don't want to deal with or handle. And instead of growing in the tension of things like marital difficulties so that we could become stronger and, and more like Christ, we look for loopholes so that we can get out and feel better about ourselves. And then we blame everyone else as if it's their fault. But does Jesus ever offer loopholes to the law? No. 
He raises the stakes. He raises it. The law says do not commit adultery, but Jesus says that if you lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. The law says do not murder, but Jesus said if you hate your brother, you have murdered him already in your heart. Jesus never gives a loophole, but he always raises the stakes. Why? Because man looks on the outward appearance, but God has laser focus on the heart. And he judges us by our hearts. And so he's confronting the leaders about marriage, and he raises this bar so high that it causes his disciples to respond in an interesting way. Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, here's what his disciples say. He says, if this is the case, it is better not to marry. See, what they're actually saying to Jesus here, and what we could say today, is that if this is the standard for holiness, this is impossible. It's impossible for us to live up to something that high, Jesus. And so when we look at the standard, this is when the excuses come in. When we start saying, well, you don't know my situation, or, or you don't know what it's like to live with that guy, or you don't know what it was like to be lonely. You know, you don't know. And we say these excuses to justify our sin. But Jesus is saying, when it comes to my standard of holiness, there is no excuse. There is me. That's what he's saying. And so his disciples respond with, well, then how in the heck can anyone ever achieve that? And Jesus would reply, you can't. You can't. So what does that do? That makes us have to come in agreement with Scripture. The Scripture says in Romans 3.23, everyone has sinned and falls short of God's glorious standard. We can't do it on our own. Romans 3.10 says, and the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. So under this weight of God's holiness, if I can't measure up by myself, if I have no power to, to appease God on my own, if I have no ability in myself to honor God and do everything I need necessary to achieve a standard of holiness, to become right with God, no matter how many religious things I can think up to do, if I'm sinning without even knowing about it, and that sin is what separates me from God, if I can't help being a sinner, then gee whiz, maybe the sinner needs a Savior. Maybe I need a Savior. So Jesus' word here to Laodicea, is that though you may feel like you have all your stuff together, though you feel richly blessed that you don't seem to need a thing, that you're just living the American dream, the reality is compared to the glory and holiness of our great God, you are wretched, you are miserable, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. And many indifferent Christians that walk through the door of church every day have relied on praying a prayer once in their life they don't even remember. And they use God's grace as the loophole to remain the same, to remain unchanged, to remain unaffected emotionally. There's no brokenness over their sin because honestly, they don't think they even have any. There's no brokenness over those who are far from God. There's no brokenness to help people who are in need. There's no brokenness to go through the difficulty of repentance and staying in tense situations so God can grow and work out His holiness through their lives. 
There's so much indifference, so much apathy, that the only reason why they even come to church any longer is because it would just be more inconvenient to quit doing something they've turned into a habit and have been doing most of their lives. And Jesus calls this church out. You have to understand, this is a group of people that believe they are Christians, but he calls them out. This church at Laodicea. And if you are, have been indifferent like this church, he's calling you out today to wake up and to see yourself for who you really are. You are a sinner in need of a Savior. And Jesus is inviting you, as he is this church, to purchase gold refined by his fire. And gold often in Scripture resembles holiness or true spiritual riches. And he invites them to buy white garments. And white garments often represents forgiveness of sins or, or the righteousness of God which, and represents salvation to those who were lost and now have turned from their sins. And Jesus is calling out to this church. And he says, the same offering is being made to you today, the indifferent Christian. Jesus is saying to you, if you have, as you analyze and look at your life and you realize that I've just been apathetic. I just have been going through the motions. I've just been doing this thing because I just got into that rhythm. He's saying to you right now, to take advantage of the gift of God, which is forgiveness of your sins through true faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we call salvation. Amen. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus starts this passage out. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. You see, Jesus is at the door of the hearts of those who are far from him. And if you are indifferent, if you've been unchanged, if you remain unaffected, he is at the door of your heart today and he's knocking, desiring to come in and take advantage of that door opening and he will begin a true relationship with you. See, before you come to Christ, before you receive forgiveness of your sins, the scripture says you are not friends with God. You are friends with the world, and the world represents Satan, the evil one. And so before you have your sins forgiven, you are a friend of the devil, our great enemy. That's why you're destined for eternal judgment in hell. But when you become a Christian, when you give your life to Christ and you give him your heart and your sins are washed away, you become a friend of Almighty God. You get your sins forgiven, and you're made right with God, and you begin a true relationship with him. And Jesus called to you today, you who are indifferent, you who are lukewarm, is to wake up. And he says, this is how you can find salvation today. And this is our key verse in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. He says, I correct and discipline everyone I love. God loves you dearly. But he says, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. This phrase, so be diligent, it literally means to burn with zeal, to be heated up to a boil with envy, hatred, or anger, or in a good sense, to be zealous in pursuit of good, to desire earnestly to pursue. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you've been indifferent, what I want you to do right now is engage your heart engage it. Choose to become wildly passionate, to yearn with the deepest yearning. Become extremely zealous in your pursuit of a relationship with God. You see, the hardest thing that an indifferent person can try to do or attempt to do is change. It's the hardest thing. But before apathy can turn into passion, there has to be determination to change. 
You have to determine in your heart that you are going to change. It's not just going to happen. You're not just going to wake up tomorrow morning full of passion and zeal to live your life according to the holy standard of the word of God. You have to determine that you want to give God your heart, that you want him to transform your life, that you want to change. Now, my daughter Jocelyn, she is a collector of all things creepy and crawly. You know, not the, not the freaky stuff, not like spiders and things that can kill you, just with a look. But uh, she likes frogs, toads, and some bugs, like crickets and things. But she especially loves caterpillars. She, she's a caterpillar fan. Matter of fact, we are fostering a couple of caterpillars right now at our house. But it, the interesting thing about caterpillars is that the way that they were born is not the way they were intended to remain. See, they weren't meant to crawl among the ground searching for food wherever they would go. They were meant to be set free and fly among the wind as a moth or a butterfly. But in order to get to the point where they're soaring in the wind, first they need to undergo a change. And science calls this change metamorphosis. According to earthlife.net, to do this, a caterpillar has to stop eating and find somewhere safe. And there it becomes very still. So it has to choose to change its behavior. It has to make a change, make a choice to change. It then molds its skin the same as it does when it's growing, only instead of another larval skin, it secretes a pupil skin inside its old larval skin. This is much thicker and stronger. Generally, the pupa then breaks out of the old larval skin, though in many moths, the pupa remains inside the old larval skin. You can often find the remains of the caterpillar skin around the tail of the butterfly pupa. All this is fairly straightforward, but where it gets tricky is how the caterpillar inside the new pupal case changes itself into a butterfly or a moth. The first thing that happens is that a lot of the caterpillar's old body dies. It is attacked by the same sort of juices the caterpillar uses in its earlier life to digest food. It would not be far wrong to say the caterpillar digests itself from the inside out. Not all the tissue is destroyed, however. Some of the insect's old tissue passes on to its new self. The amount that it does this varies between different insects. Now, if you think about the caterpillar, see, before we become a Christian, we are like the caterpillar. We're roaming around the world trying to find something to eat to satisfy our souls. We're looking around for what will nourish us and keep us going. But we know deep down in our souls that we're starving. Starving for something to fulfill us. Starving for life change. Starving for life transformation. Starving for true hope and true joy. And then we encounter the message of Christ and the gospel and we begin to feast on the truth of the word of God. So we make a choice. We turn from our sin to follow Jesus. We stop roaming around, munching on pleasure, popularity, and worldly gain. And we stop searching for fulfillment in those things because we've become filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit begins to work out a change in our life. And now we've entered the cocoon stage or that metamorphosis process where our old flesh is being put to death and through the juices of the Holy Spirit, our old nature is being dissolved and we are being made into the image of God. And now we have purpose. 
Now we have right standing with God. Now we have joy in the struggle as we're going through this process of life change. Knowing that one day, the metamorphosis will be over. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 52 through 54, Paul says it will happen in a moment. In the blink of an eye, when the last trump is blown, for when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we, her living, will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. And our moral bodies must be transformed into immoral bodies. Then when we are, and then our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. See, the day we see Jesus face to face, this metamorphosis phase will be over. The struggle between putting our sinful nature to death and walking in new life through the power of the Holy Spirit will come to an end because all that will be left is our eternal and godly nature. And we will be set free to fly among the clouds, to fly among the wind with nothing holding us back because we will be with our Savior, Jesus Christ, and finally be what God intended for us to be in our creation. His chosen people, His royal priesthood, His bride. But there are many caterpillar Christians who think they've entered metamorphosis when in reality they are just lethargic. And if you're from the Northeast like me, the Boston area, you say lethargic. This is what it is. You're lethargic. They're not moving around. They're not going anywhere. They're not going in any direction spiritually. They're not eating food of the world and pursuing sinful lifestyles, but neither are they eating of the food that Christ gives. They're not doing anything inherently wrong. Their life on the outside is pretty well put together. We would say that they were a good person, but there's no evidence of life change. There's no passion in their heart. There's no zeal. They are, they're neither heating things up or cooling things off for the kingdom of God. They are lukewarm. They are just indifferent. And the reason why they haven't entered metamorphosis is because they don't see themselves for who they really are. They think they're all good in the hood, but they're really cold, naked, blind. They are sinners in need of a savior. And they are still just a hungry, hungry caterpillar that stopped moving. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus shouts as he's proclaiming to this church. He starts off and he says, look. He says, look. This word look, it's to get your attention. See, Jesus doesn't want you to miss what he's saying. He doesn't want you to miss the opportunity to begin a relationship with him, to begin metamorphosis, this life change process. So he says, look. He's shouting. He's saying, look. This could also mean behold or pay attention to what I'm saying. Or in other words, he could, he's saying, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? He's trying to get you to pay attention to what he's saying. And he's saying, if you don't think it's you who's indifferent, it's probably you. It's you I'm pleading with. You aren't connected. Your heart isn't moving. Your heart isn't broken over your sin. Your heart isn't broken over the sinful condition of other people. You're not desperate to engage people where they are and lead them to becoming fully developed followers of Jesus Christ. You're not zealous about putting your sin to death and going through what's difficult, difficult situations in order to become who Jesus desires for you to be. You don't have an undying passion to serve the least of these, to give of yourself to be Jesus to people in need. Your only concern is your comfort, your plans, your life, your wants, your desires, and your career. 
And Jesus is calling out to you today that you are the indifferent Christian. In Revelation 3.20, it says, look, pay attention. I'm standing at the door and knocking. If you hear my voice and respond, you open the door, I will come in. And we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Let's go into a time of prayer this morning. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. Let's have no one looking around in this moment. And let's just let the weight of the presence of the Spirit of God rest in this place. Maybe you're here today and you know the Spirit of God speaking to you. You know it's you He just called out. You know He's chasing you right now. You hear His hand beating on the door of your heart. He's beating. He wants to come in. Will you respond today? In a moment, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to pray with me by faith from your heart so that you can open the door of your heart to Jesus and let him in to begin a relationship with him. Will you choose today to finally buy true gold from Jesus, to buy your white garment by receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior today? Now you might say to me, Joey, I know he's speaking to me, but I've already prayed this prayer. I've already asked Jesus into my heart a long time ago, so I'm confused as to why I feel like this today. Let me tell you from the word of the Lord that the Spirit is speaking to you for a reason. Just as the Spirit of God is in this place, so is the enemy, the one we wrestle with every day. The enemy wants you to keep you from obeying the voice of the Holy Spirit. The enemy will try to convince you you are right with God so that you don't respond. He's going to lie to you because that's what he does. And he'll give you arguments and things in your mind to help you justify being resistant to the voice of the Holy Spirit. But see, the job of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin, to draw us to repentance, to reveal truth to us. There's a reason you feel the weight on you right now. There's a reason you know in your heart right now that you need to respond, that you need to pray this prayer of faith because you know deep down that you have been the indifferent Christian. You have been all talk and no action. The Spirit of God is pleading with you today to resist no longer. Don't resist Him today. Don't harden your heart, but let go. Fear. Let go of your pride and recognize you, like the rest of us in this room, are a sinner in need of a Savior. And let Him break that indifference today. Give Him your heart. Maybe you've just felt indifferent for a while. You had passion at one time, but you've lost that passion. Maybe you need to rededicate your life to Christ in order to rekindle that passion today. 
Whether you've prayed to receive Christ before, this is your first time, I'm going to ask you right now in this room to pray this prayer with me aloud from your heart to God and allow Jesus to begin this life process, this life change process in you today. Pray this with me. Father in heaven, forgive me of my sin. I believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I claim Jesus now and forever as my Lord and Savior. Break this indifference. Fill me with your spirit. Give me undying passion to honor you. Take my life, Lord. It's yours. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. And we agree together by saying, amen. If you prayed this prayer with me today, if you opened that door for the first time in your heart, receiving Christ as your Savior, or maybe you just rededicated your life to Christ as a testimony of your faith and the first step away from indifference, I'm going to ask you right now here in this room to stand to your feet. Just stand all around the room. Let's give these individuals a hand for taking a step of faith. God, we honor you today in this place. God, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for those who stepped out this morning, God, and gave you their heart. Lord, break that indifference. God, I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would fill them right now with such a passion and your fire, God, that they would feel it in their bones. God, that it would rattle them. God, that you would bring them to the place where they know you intimately. God, give them their your calling. God, you have a purpose for their life. God, send it to them now. Speak it to their heart. Help them to know where they fit into the kingdom of God. God, let your love wash all over them as they know that they are not to feel shame, but they are now to feel the love of Jesus Christ wash their sins away. God, and we thank the, you for them today and the life change that's going on in this room. Lord, as we now enter this time of worship, Receive now the praise that is only due your name. And as we sing, God, I pray that you do a mighty work in all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up together as we sing.